Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. This is Robert from Nostalgic Video and Cars, here to tell you about Bellador's Pizza and Pasta, where the food is fresh, the sauce homemade, and the price is fantastic. They offer Chicago-style stuffed crust pizza, New York-style pizza, calzones, strombolis, pasta entrees, beer wine, and great desserts. They even make the bread fresh daily. Hey, they offer catering, and any order over 10 bucks, free delivery. So give them a call at 727-581-5000. Place your order now. They're located at 131 Clearwater Lager Road near downtown Largo. Or visit their website, belladorspizza.com. Gasoline, liquid power to run millions of automobiles everywhere. Yet, how many know what happens to the gas after it is poured into the gas tanks? Or realize the care that motor car engineers have taken to give each drop an equal chance to do its duty? Gasoline is powerful, but each drop can give a 100% account of himself only when he finds the most efficiently designed gasoline system to help him along his journey. For a successful life, every drop of gasoline depends entirely upon what happens to him after he gets in the swim. Let's go after that drop of gasoline. So this is what the inside of the gas tank looks like. All right, we'll have to dive too. Here goes. This isn't the water main. It's the gas line from the tank to the engine. It's a good thing it's cool in this gas line. If it ever got warm, the gasoline would form vapor and the pressure would hold the gas back in the tank. But we won't get stuck because this pipe is on the right side of the car while the hot exhaust is far over on the other side. This is the gasoline pump that's been pulling the gasoline along all this time. Well, here we are in the little glass bowl below the gasoline pump. It's made out of glass, so the owner can easily see any sediment collecting on the bottom and have it removed whenever necessary. But we can't stop long here. Guess the only place we can get out is through that screen up there. And is that going to be tough? The holes are certainly small. 14,000 of these tiny holes to the square inch keep dirt from reaching the carburetor. Even water can't get through this screen. Whoa, he seems to be stuck. Must be a bit of dirt clinging to him. But as soon as it comes off, he'll get through all right. There, he made it. 
The pump is a trusty friend of the gasoline, always supplies just the right amount. Whenever the car is going uphill or makes a sudden burst of speed, the pump automatically works harder. But we've got to keep moving on to the carburetor. We just came through the needle valve that lets the gasoline into the carburetor. That is the float on top of the gasoline. It controls the needle valve, keeping just the right amount of gas here in the bowl of the carburetor. Hey, there goes our drop again. He's going down through the metering jet at the bottom. But he's still in the carburetor. How's that for wind? It roars through the carburetor, sometimes at a speed as high as 800 miles an hour to vaporize the gasoline. That funnel above and the other one below are called Venturi tubes. They control the speed and direction of this hurricane of air. Three tubes in this carburetor keep raw gasoline from getting into the engine. An important reason why the cylinders of this engine run on a very small amount of gasoline. But look, there's our drop over there again. Say, he's getting bigger. He's being mixed with air. He'll grow up to be about 17 times his original size, so he can do his best when he gets into the cylinder. Right down to the manifold that distributes the gasoline to the cylinder. Ouch! We're standing on the hot spot. All the drops mixed with enough air are floating right on past. The others stop here to be vaporized. This manifold heater cuts down waste and lets each drop of gasoline do its best. go down the manifold. Gasoline is whirled through the manifold to keep the mixture uniform, speeded up in one place and slowed down in another. So the same amount of gas gets into each one of the cylinders. These are the valves that control the gas going into the cylinders. These big intake valves certainly make it easy for gas to get into the cylinder. No crowding, no pushing, no waste. Important for gasoline economy. There's the spark plug up there, just in the right place to burn all this gasoline. And here comes that great big piston. the exhaust valve opening up and here comes the piston again lucky they made the exhaust valve large too so we can get out in a hurry there goes the ghost of our drop of gasoline thanks to the engineers he's given a perfect account of himself he has led a more fortunate life than lots of other drops of course every drop must go from the tank to the exhaust but they don't all have the economy adventures met by every drop of gas which goes down this gasoline trail. Hello out there. Peabody and Sherman here. Set the way back machine. We enter the way back and we're immediately hurtled back through time and space. This is Robin Miller from Speed. You're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't turn that dial. Hey, listen. 
Masters. Welcome. You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google TamTalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studio. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com. If you've missed any of our past shows, you can find it all on our podcast, Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And don't forget our Facebook pages, Gulfstream Motorsports and uh, what's the other one? Let me think here a minute. My mind just went blank. Oh, yeah. Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Anyway, hey, we got a great show for you tonight. We got a number of people coming on. We got a couple shorties for you, and then we got a long interview with a very, very interesting gentleman coming on a little bit later. So, as Robin Miller said, do not touch that dial. Now, you know, it's funny. If you guys are paying attention to the beginning of the show, we played that little clip. It was a 30s clip talking about uh, gasoline and its role in the motor. You know, of course, uh, nowadays, you know, gasoline is not nearly the octane it used to be. And uh, it's interesting because I think one of the things that we're going to talk about a little bit later on the show with our guests is technology in terms of engine design and, and engine evolution. You know, I mean, like the way engines were back in the day, you know, how they eventually figured out that compression was the secret to performance and economy. And then, you know, in the mid to late 70s, you know, we, we downgraded our motors in terms of compression and made the motors much more fuel inefficient with low compression motors and and lousy low octane fuels and we need octane and we need compression that's the key to making a motor run of course alan uh let me say hello to uh cedric cedric's out there on the he's got his ear 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 he's got his ears on hey 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 and alan's sitting on the other side of the fence well alan you gonna come in you gonna just sit there and just stare at me and he's just staring at me anyway, anyway so uh he says, got, he's, he says he's just going to stare. He's just going to stare. Okay, so stare, he's on the other side of the glass. What people don't realize is we actually sit in the studio, and if you can see us live in the studio. Matter of fact, you know what? This thing's not streaming. <laughs> is it just, I, just, I just restarted you it. You just restarted it? Okay. I zoomed it all in so if people could see your beautiful banner there. My beautiful banner there. Yes, and that's uh, courtesy and compliments of our good friends at the sign shop down there in uh, Madeira Beach, our good friend Dougie. And uh, you know what? <laughs> They're making I'm faces. Think, but nothing happens. Yeah, I try to think, and nothing happens. There we go. Why does that happen to me? Try it again. I'll be kicking your furry brown bahooki. You and what arm? Oi! Oh, fire! You watch your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're gonna get a hug. Every time you open up your mouth, you give away your ignorance. <laughs> oh man, Robert! Really? I found that this station. Um, I think it's like ten point two. I guess it is on the on the over the air broadcast. Yeah, it's like ten point two, and they were playing old reruns of uh, whatever the show was. Red Foxes. Red Foxes. Yeah. Whatever. Sanford and Son. Sanford and Son. And it was it was good. It was fun. Yeah. You big dummy. You I big think, dummy. Yeah. We got. That. Well, actually, we got a couple clips on there uh, somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> hey, go ahead and get our first guest on the phone. That kind of reminded me of that. But uh, let me give you a rundown on what's going on. Also, by the way, uh, this week is Alan just stepped in the studio here. Now you can go ahead and play the saint. <laughs> Oh, you know Timing what? Timing is everything. Alan doesn't have uh, ears. We don't have any ears for Alan. You know I'm good you? enough. You're good enough? Okay. Yeah. He can read my lips. There you go. <laughs> but anyway, uh, let's see. What do we got going on this weekend? We got this weekend. This, well, this weekend is the 4th of July. Wow. The 4th of July. Huge, huge celebration there. And uh, big, 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 big deal. So everybody should uh, get together, hang out with their friends, hang out with their buddies. Be extremely careful this weekend. Okay. Don't uh, go into excesses with... Uh, don't drink and drive. Don't drink and drive, exactly. 
And um, But anyway, we've got a guest on the line. Okay, hey, one of the things that's going on this weekend here in our own backyard downtown, it's not St. Petersburg, it's actually Pinellas Park, is the Harapalooza. And we've got the promoter, my good friend Frank. Are you there? The promoter of Harapalooza and also the manager owner of Soundstage Live. Frank, are you there? Yeah, how are you doing, Robert? Pretty good. Tell us what's going on this weekend. Harapalooza 2014, England Brothers Park in the heart of Pinellas Park in between Clearwater and St. Pete. We've got on the program Winger is going to close the show. Great White with the XYZ singer Toulouse. Um, Slaughter. And opening up the event is Stephen Piercy of the legendary singer of Rat, Robert. Oh, wow. Our local regional favorites are Sobriety X is going to open the show at 12 o'clock when the gates open. And then we've got the Stone Gray Band, who I believe they've got a record deal coming up with Sony. So it's going to be a full day of entertainment. Hair bands, hair of Belusa, bring your lawn chairs, bring your appetite, and bring your quench. Um, it seems to me that that tropical storm is going to pull the moisture out of the air, so we're going to have a pretty dry day, and it's going to be hot, but we'll have all the amenities to have a fun festival. Super. Well, you've done a successful job because you've done uh, a number of events around here. You did the one up in Pasco County uh, earlier this year, and last year you did the, uh, what was it called? The one with uh, Born Molly? Born to Ride Jam. Born to Ride. Motorcycle Festival here at the, same, at the same facility. That's super, yeah. Now, do you have another one coming up this fall, too, again? We have Born to Ride Jam coming up again okay. with uh, Bachman and Turner, Billy Squire, Blue Oyster Colt. Fog Hat, Molly Hatchet, the Sons of Anarchy are coming back. But we're real excited about this weekend. Um, get here early. Like I said, lawn chairs and um, blankets are, are, are encouraged for the GA ticket, which it's a free ticket, but there's a surcharge of $2.98 if you go online to ticketfly.com. All the rally stores have the tickets for $2.98. It's a 98 Rock show. Listen to your on the FM dial, I know you're on the AM, Robert, right? Right, yep. If you're on the FM dial and you're on 98 Rock, uh, listen to 98 Rock and you can win tickets there. And actually, if you want to give away a pair of VIP tickets, Robert, I can email them to you. Really? Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. If anybody wants to call in sometime during the show, within the next 10 minutes or so, 15 minutes, give us a call here at the studio because my good friend Frank... He's going to give away a set of tickets, or give allow us to give away a VIP. set of t- VIP tickets. Yeah, we'll give away some. We'll give a couple of VIP t- tickets. The VIP tickets are twenty nine ninety eight in advance on tickets only online, and then you can get them at the gate. They're going to be thirty four ninety eight, and the, the 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 admission at the gate is going to be four ninety eight. Super. Well, give so, us. A- um, we've got quite. We've got quite. We're, we're, we're the, the event is doing pretty good. We've got a lot of people coming out. Relive the '80s, with the <laughs> hair bands, and uh, we're going to have a we're having a great day of music with some great music from um, from nationally and regionally, and and uh, and your favorite foods and festival foods, and we got some gourmet stuff. We've got Joffrey's coffee coming out, and they're going to have um, Budweiser Black Crown milkshakes, which is going to be kind of like a summer. 
some are a great um, treat. <laughs> My board ops foaming at the mouth there right now. Cedric, did that get your attention? We have. Sorry, no. Well, I was just saying we got we got we a bunch callers. of people. We got a p- bunch of people calling, and we have a winner. We have a winner. All right, we got a winner. Oh, good, 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 good. Get their um, Robert. Get yes. their email address. Okay. Text it to me. Okay. And um, I'll get their tickets out right away. Super. Gotcha. All right. Well, fact, if you want to, if you want to give later, if you want to give away another. Um, we can give away like a uh, like a, a, a four pack if you want a VIP ticket. If you want okay. to do something a little later in the show, yeah, we can do that. do that. Sure, and just text me and I'll and I'll make sure that they go out tonight. Okay, very good. Excellent. Again, the number so the number here. It's, it's, it's this coming Saturday, July the fifth. Go to ticketfly.com for your tickets. Put in here Palooza. Like I said, the general admission ticket is two dollars and ninety eight cents. The VIP is twenty nine ninety eight, and you're you, you won't be disappointed. Super. Well, Frank, I want to thank you very much for taking a few minutes and tell us about Palooza. Don't forget this weekend. What a way to spend the Fourth of July weekend at a concert. What time does it start down there? Gates are at twelve, and it ends about ten. Super, super, super. Okay, Frank, will you take care? I'll see you down there, and I'm going to bring my. Robert, we'll see you at the show. And I'm going to bring my camera. Bring it with you, brother. All right, take care. Thank you. Bye bye. Mm-hmm. Okay, Hair Palooza. Well, that was pretty good. Wow, we got phones ringing. Everything's. Yeah, you know why is it that always happens? It's it's like nobody will call until you give away something, and then all of a sudden everybody wants to be a fan of the show. Oh, I love your <laughs> show. Give me some stuff. Because they're great tickets. It's a great opportunity to have a good time. Oh yeah, there we go. There you go. Everybody's a winner on Tanton. <laughs> Everybody's a winner. Well, I'll tell you what. Even if you do call in you know we still will give you and if we don't have any more tickets left we will give you a bumper sticker yeah we'll give you my my classic car or something like that okay cool yeah Anyway, we were supposed to do that when Frank was on the phone. That's oh, you right. forgot that. All right. So, hey, what do we got? To... <laughs> what do we got in the turntable real quick? And then we got to get another guest on real quick for I a think few minutes. The, I think you're sending out. This is like a special, uh, like a. Just a little uh, like. Like uh, a like a Casey Kasem special dedication. We're sending this one out. <laughs> to my three-toed dog. <laughs> <laughs> this is a special request and dedication. This one's from Robert. Oh. Robert, he's sending this one out to a guy who has a nervous breakdown. <laughs> yeah. This little uh, 30s, 40s. No, this is actually 50s brick. A 50s uh, rock and roll. Yeah. All Some right. people say this was the inspiration for Led Zeppelin's... Uh, communication breakdown. I don't really hear it, but some people have said that. This is uh, Eddie Cochran, right? Yep. Eddie Cochran. Hey, you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio. Bill said, Bill said he died in a car crash. He did? That's what I heard. Oh, really? Okay, we turn into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't go away. We got more goodies and more people coming on our show. Stick around.
Nostalgic Video and Cars, here to tell you about Bellador's Pizza and Pasta, where the food is fresh, the sauce homemade, and the price is fantastic. They offer Chicago-style stuffed crust pizza, New York-style pizza, calzones, strombolis, pasta entrees, beer wine, and great desserts. They even make the bread fresh daily. Hey, they offer catering, and any order over 10 bucks, free delivery. So give them a call at 727-581-5000. Place your order now. They're located at 131 Clearwater Lager Road near downtown Largo, or visit their website, belladorspizza.com. Hi, this is Danny Sullivan, 1985, Indianapolis 500 winner, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and uh, one of the things that took place this weekend was the Great Race. It was a race that took place, it's kind of a rally, it's a timed event, okay, it started in Maine and wound up in Ocala, Florida at National Parts Depot, and then uh, from there they went over and had their uh, the awards presentation and the final hoopla at uh, the Villages, which I was totally amazed. I'm, I go there every once in a while. They got a great car show. It's a senior living thing, you know, fifty five and older type deal. But the the Villages is kind of like in a little world of utopia all by itself. But anyway, there was a couple guys there that had some really cool cars, and one guy in particular won an award, and I believe we have him on the phone, and he's he had a car. And I think he came in pretty close to nearly winning the event. So I'm delighted to welcome to the show a local guy. And I missed him at the event. But what happened was yesterday afternoon we were driving down the road and I recognized the car. So I jumped out of the traffic light. Not uncommon for me, right? Yeah. Since I chase coins in the, yeah, co- in the middle yeah, of the street. Yeah, there's a quarter out in the middle, middle of the street. Yeah. I did to go chase yeah. down. Anyway, so I went <laughs> over. I opened up his door, spooked the poor guy, threw in a brochure, said, hey, give us a call. And we did. So now he's <laughs> going to be a guest on our radio show. I'm delighted to welcome to the show. Either he's Craig. a guest or he's shocked. What to do? Yeah. Is uh, Craig Rubright. Craig, are you there? Yes, sir. So, Craig, tell us about your uh, your experience with the great race. And you're a local guy. You're from Clearwater. Yeah, I grew up in Clearwater. And uh, uh, my friend and I, Garrett Jenkins from uh, Birmingham, Alabama, who was my navigator on the trip, we had uh, shared rides in the 24 hours of Daytona and the 12 hours of Sebring. And then uh, as life would have it, you get a little bit older. And all of a sudden, uh, he decided he he had a bunch of kids. He didn't want to race a whole lot anymore. So he became the crew chief, and I bought an ARCA car. And we started running some of the preliminary events for some of the NASCAR sites like uh, Daytona, Talladega, um, Michigan, uh, up at Pocono, something like that. And uh, we did that for six years. And after that, uh, we sold all the stuff. I, I finally got too old to drive 195 mile an hour anymore. So uh, we started rebuilding and, and collecting cars. And a little bit ago, we looked over and there was five cars in the garage. And we said, what are we doing with these things? And we weren't really doing a whole lot. So uh we decided we'd do something with them, and the great race looked like a lot of fun, and it's competition, so we thought that we would enter that, and uh, gosh, it was uh, everything I thought it would be. Uh, it's a time and distance endurance rally, and we started in Algonquip, Maine on Saturday, and ended up in the villages this Sunday, so it was nine days, and uh, quite the adventure. 
Tell us a little bit about some of the adventures that you had going on. I mean, was what were some of the uh, like the? I mean, did you have uh, was the did the car run flawlessly? In fact, tell us what you were driving. Um, we're driving someone of a modified 1937 Ford. They they started referring to me as the All American Car during the race, and uh, that's because we had a 1937 uh, Ford chassis and body, and we have a 350 Chevrolet engine in it, and we have a uh, color. It's a little bit different than most of them. It's a Dodge Viper color called Copperhead Orange. So they refer to me as the uh, All-American car. And uh, some of the some of the funny things, they, they make you drive at a certain mile per hour, and sometimes you have to hold that mile an hour for 30 or 40 minutes, or sometimes they tell you you have to stay on this mile an hour for 3 minutes and 36 seconds and then go up 5 mile an hour. So it's not a speed event. It's how close that you can stay to the designated time with the instructions they give you, and you have absolutely no idea where you are and absolutely no idea where you're going. You just follow the instructions. So the so your navigator basically gives you instructions, and then you have to basically drive and follow and do what he tells you to do, correct? That's correct. And everybody said, what did you see? Was it wonderful? All I saw was the speedometer <laughs> and the line of the road because... If, if you got to stay on 35 mile an hour, you have to stay on 35 mile an hour, and then you'll say go to 40, and I'll go go to 40. It's kind of like a airplane cockpit. We didn't. There's no chit chat. There's no how you doing, what's going on at work, none of that. It's it's all business, and uh, so we took care of that, and uh, we were leading until the very last leg. I think there was 51 legs in the race, and we were leading after 50 legs, and somehow. We showed up 19 seconds early at the last checkpoint, and uh, we ended up by losing by 3.13 seconds. Oh, the whole overall race? Yeah. Oh, that is three seconds. That's that's it's not a lot. That's sad. That's too close. And when the race ended, we were, like, in a very slow section. We were only going 15 miles an hour, so I don't know how far you go at 15 miles an hour in three seconds, but it's, it's not very far. All right, now tell us about... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's fine. I was going to say, tell us about some of the equipment, because I noticed a lot of the cars had clocks, and they also had a special speedometer wired in. Now, in the old days, I forget Halla, what the... Halla Speed Pilot. Halla Speed Pilot. Okay, so you had kind of like a modern-day version of that, but it wasn't like uh, a, a little doohickey that was mounted on the dash. You had... Was it mechanical? Big, you had big, giant gauges in there, I noticed. Yeah. They, we have something called uh, time-wise speedometer. Okay. Uh, if anybody's thinking about getting into this, they're about $1,100, $1, so... It, that's probably the most important part of this. But after running real race cars, this is very inexpensive compared to that. <laughs> but the, the speedometer cost, uh, I think, 1200 1100 somewhere in there. And we also have a clock that is a very expensive good clock. And before you start, uh, you can go up to the rally master who has got the uh, time with the atomic clock that they have in Colorado. So you make sure that exactly when that thing says it's time that your thing is is you set it to where it's on the on the twelve, and you can go because everything you do is based off that clock. Wow! So, as I was telling everybody, this is kind of a rolling math quiz. If if you don't like the thing about the train leaves Chicago at nine o'clock, going fifty mile an hour, and the train leaves New York going in the opposite direction, going 60 mile an hour, at what point they'll meet. If you can't do that, this is not your sport. Yeah. Because you have to keep track of how fast you're going, and if you get held up in traffic, 
you have to make up time, and it, it gets crazy. It's just, it's just an ongoing math game. Would you recommend it to anybody? Absolutely. And you had a blast? I had a blast. I, I, I thought I was going to die of exhaustion uh, Monday morning when I went to work. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was okay. Okay. And I bet it was a blast doing it with Corky. Have you done these events before? No. Uh, we went to one in Missouri, but we had, uh, we had a problem, and we only got to run half a day. But that was invaluable about learning how to get to the start, because when everybody sees everybody go off, that's really not the start. You're just going to go out to calibrate your speedometer and get your tires up to temperature and what have you. Then you calibrate your speedometer, and they give you instructions as to where the start is, which is sometimes an hour and a half away from where you left. Okay. Because all the, all the time stages are in very rural areas where you won't get tied up with traffic very much. Okay, super. Well, Craig... They uh, never do this going down US-19, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Craig, thanks for coming on for a few minutes. I'll tell you what we're going to do. If if I get an extra set of tickets to go to the Harapalooza this weekend, if you want to yeah. go, let me know, because Frank just offered us another set, the promoter for um, for the Harapalooza down there in Pinellas Park. So if you like yep. you know rock and roll music and 80s hair band type style music, uh, we'll see if we can hook you up. And in the meantime, thanks a lot. Take care of your car. Hopefully I'll see you at some of the car shows. Tell your friends to tune into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And I think we've got to go to a little commercial break, and then we got our main guest coming on later today. Later today. Later this afternoon. Later this evening. Later Soon. on the show. Shortly. Shortly. Yeah. Okay. Hey, you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio Cars. Do not go anywhere. Do not change that channel. I think we got a little. Uh, hey, we got some swing music coming on there, don't we? We got some. There's a little. Yeah, I got some swing music. All right. Let's do, let's do a little quick commercial real quick. Get our guest, and then throw the music on, and then uh, we'll be right back. Hey, listeners. This is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Car sent you.
international fame, the Indy 500 was becoming more and more showbiz, as evidenced by this 1939 presentation and the growing race day attendance. Jimmy Snyder became the first man to break the 130-mile-an-hour barrier to take the pole. Louis Meyer was second fastest, and Wilbur Shaw qualified third. At the start, it was Snyder taking the lead, but Shaw and Meyer weren't far behind. Snyder dropped off the pace as Shaw took the lead, and on lap 70, Meyer paced the field for the first time. Snyder regained the lead, but Louis Meyer was applying pressure. At lap 104, Meyer moved into first with Wilbur Shaw and Ted Horn taking chase. Jimmy Snyder dropped back to fourth and was hanging on as well. At the three-quarter mark, it was Meyer in the lead. There was only one other two-time winner at that time. Meyer was looking for win number four. At 182 laps, Wilbur Shaw took the lead and started to pull away. Meyer lost control but remained in the hunt. Shaw continued to lead on lap 197. When Meyer, desperately trying to catch up, lost control again, smashing through the fence. Louis was thrown out onto the track, but walked away from the accident. Hi everybody, this is David Hobbs, racing driver and commentator for Speed Channel, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back, and you're tuning into Nostalgic Video and Cars, and it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. This gentleman, if you paid attention to the clip, comes from a long legacy of racing guys in the indie world. His father was the first three-time Indianapolis 500 champion. And this gentleman, his son, decided to go ahead and follow in his dad's footsteps, but not as a racer, but as an engine builder, because his dad got involved with an engine company called Myers Drake. Sonny, his son, okay, Myers Jr., decided to take it upon himself to become one of the finest Indianapolis Indy 500 engine builders. And he's also the 2013 Indianapolis Motor Speedway Hall of Fame inductee. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening my friend Sonny Myers Jr. Sonny, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Well, go ahead and give, give us a little recap here. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the business, because you obviously wanted to follow in your, in your father's footsteps, but you were more or, lo- more or less an engine guy, right? Well, you know... Uh when I was born, uh, you know, my dad won India in 1928 in car 14. And when I was born in 1930, uh, I was, uh, the house that I was brought to, uh, or he said that to put him on Broadway. And the home that I was brought to from the hospital was 2814 Broadway. And, uh, we had a uh, five car garage across the back of the, the, uh, <clears throat> the lot behind the house. And uh, one of the garages was a machine shop, and the rest of them was where they built race cars. So I kind of I kind of grew up uh, uh, in that business. Now, did you just have kind of a mechanical knack right away? Was it something you had to work at, or did it come kind of naturally? No, it's it just natural. Okay. Yeah, just uh, 
Well, I, I started out like uh, six years old. I'd, I'd oil the lathes for the machi- for the machinists, and you know, then you had to be a machinist and a mechanic, and uh, and uh, I just uh, had the knack for it. And I started out oiling the lathes, and then pretty soon they, they had me polishing castings, and and then uh, pretty soon I was running the lathes and the mills, and and. Uh, so that's where I got my education, right in, the, right in the garage in the backyard. Now, your dad started out actually also as a mechanic, correct, before he became a driver? Uh, yes, he did. Yeah, my dad was uh, in high school, and uh, they had a, a plague in California, and they closed all the high schools. So he went to work for his brother, Eddie, uh, Eddie Meyer, uh, in a uh, auto, uh, general auto, general, uh, auto uh, shop, and... Uh, uh, he, Eddie had the, the Redland Special, and uh, my dad used to work on the Redland Special, and that's where uh, he honed his skills on being a mechanic, uh, just working on race cars and, and uh, Model Ts. <laughs> now tell us about the Redland Special. That was more of a, uh, uh, a it wasn't really a, a, a road race car or anything like that, or a round run car. It was more of a, a late car, wasn't it? Well, no, the Redland Special, uh, it did have a tiller steering on it, but uh, no, it it ran. Uh, you know, uh, they ran against Barney Oldfield on on the oh, right. uh, on the ovals, and uh, yeah, it was quite a car. <laughs> it was a big car, that's for sure. Well, well, didn't your uncle? Didn't he eventually get into? Wasn't he more into uh, drag racing and 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 like land speed cars? No, no, no. no? Okay. Uh, uh, my my dad's older brother uh, Eddie was in hydroplane racing. Okay. And. Uh, so that's what uh, kind of got me into hydroplane racing. I I was building a a, a lakester. I got a teardrop, and I was going to build a, a lakester and uh, run it across the dry lakes. And and uh, my dad's partner Dale Drake says, "You're just wasting your time. Why don't you get a hydroplane and go hydroplane racing?" So that got me into hydroplane racing. How long did you do that? Uh, I, I I raced hydroplanes for about twelve years. Really? What kind of uh, motors yeah. did you put in those things? And uh, well, I had. Uh, had Crosleys, and then I moved up to the V860s. Oh, really? Little Fords, huh? Yeah, the little Fords, uh huh. Okay. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, they would they would run about uh, 103 miles an hour down a straightaway, so they were pretty quick. <laughs> wow. Tell us a little bit about the motors now. Tell us a little bit about Offenhauser, because you guys have a real strong connection with Offenhauser motors, well, and of course that's uh, the the pinnacle engine at Indy for a number of decades. Well, uh, my dad bought the Offenhauser plant in 1946, and uh, and of course I was still in high school, but uh, my studies uh, suffered because I'd go right from school to the shop and, and go to work, and uh, I've made every part of a of an Offenhauser engine except the valve spring and a ball bearing. I you know I've run the lathes and the mills and the gear shapers, and and uh, and then I was finally in the assembly room and. Uh, then we dynam- I dynamometered the engines, and uh, so I just kind of grew up in uh, making parts. I, I've, you know, like I say, I've made every every part of an engine with my own two hands, and those were not on CNC machines in those days. It was all hand and hand mills and hand lays. Okay. Now the Offenhauser engine, what was it based on? Was it based on a Miller, or was it a completely? No, it was. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, yeah. In fact, uh, Miller uh, copied the Hispano Souza. And uh, and then uh, then the Offenhauser uh, finally uh, Offenhauser was Miller's uh, uh, foreman. When Miller went broke, Offenhauser took the plant over, and they just called the engine an Offenhauser. And then when my dad and Dale Drake bought it out, then they called it the Offenhauser manufactured by Meyer and Drake Engineering. Okay. 
And now yeah, the- it was a continual development program all the time. I mean, uh, you know, we we built and sold engines and parts, but we were we developed every day. We were developing the engine. In the early days, uh, this is a question that came up earlier today, and I've got a friend of mine, Alan, sitting in with me a little bit because he's <laughs> he's uh, he's a car enthusiast as well. And we were talking about the displacements. What were the displacements like? Uh, in the 20s and 30s, and then it seemed like they were big, and then they got smaller, and then they went big again. Tell us a little bit about that, that evolution there. Well, uh, of course, our midget was 97 cubic inch, <laughs> and then uh, uh, we went up to, uh, finally in the Indy cars, we had 270 cubic inch, and uh, they wanted to slow the cars down. They're going too fast. They're always trying to slow them down from going too fast, and so they cut the uh the 270, uh, which put out 330 horsepower, down to 255. And when they cut it down to 255, we shortened the rod and shortened the block. And uh, we went from 330 horsepower up to 420. Oh, wow. <laughs> so the, the exact opposite occurred then. That's right, yeah, yeah, because we shortened the rod and and, uh, and then shortened the stroke, and uh, it made the engine go from 330 up to 420. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. That's a good question, too, though, because, like, for example, they, you know, in, in racing there for a long time, they uh, they were always concerned about going too fast. You always hear that. But yet, that's the the people involved in the promoting and the sa- and the people involved in the safety side of it. But the racers and guys like you, the engine builders, you guys just want to go faster and faster and faster. How much truth is there to that? Well, that's that's a way. That's what where the development comes from. I mean, okay. we're always no matter what they do to slow us down, we always work to develop to go faster. And uh, that's where all the development comes from. And and you know if. Uh, you know, they they say uh, man's they don't want the cars to go over 220 around a speedway because man's reaction time isn't fast enough, and uh, otherwise we could be running around there 300 miles an hour now with these down with these uh, ground effects cars. But uh, they keep cutting back the cubic inch, and they they cut back the size of the wing, and they cut back on the ground effects, and and uh, they're trying to keep the cars around 220 miles an hour because they said a guy could lose it and hit the wall and not even realize. He had hit the wall before he realized he lost it. <clears throat> yeah, because of the speed. Okay. Let me ask you a question now. I played a little clip, and there was a little announcement. It was talking about how your dad, I think it was a 1939 Indy uh, Indianapolis 500 race, where your dad came around, lost control of the car, bounced into the fence, but then, and then was thrown from the car, but then got up, ran off the track... In his socks, I might add, because I think I listened right. to the rest of the story. So you were you were heavily involved in safety, right? I mean, you did, did you oh, go to oh, a lot yeah. of races and watch your dad? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I sat in the grandstand and watched him because you couldn't get in the pits until you was twenty one. You know, and I was just a kid. So uh, what was going through your mind but, when you'd see these mishaps, especially your dad? Oh, oh, oh well, it's just part of racing. That's all. Okay. Yeah. In fact, I you know I I remember. Uh, uh, one of the drivers, uh, uh, you know, the guys, they were all poor, and they stayed at each other's houses. And I remember uh, uh, one of the drivers, I would uh, step over him, at, uh, you know, in the living room when he was there on his floor sleeping. And uh, the next day, uh, uh, we went to Ascot, and, and uh, this one driver that I was stepping over that night, he'd went over the fence and was killed. And, and uh, as we were leaving, my dad says, well, that's where he bought the farm, right there. <laughs> so... Mm. That's the way you looked at it. I mean, yeah. 
So is it yeah, kind of, right. would it be fair to say then that it's a racer's mentality? Because I've had a number of drivers on it. I've had Mario Andretti. I've had Dan Gurney. I've had Parnelli Jones. And, you know, they all say that you they, the drivers don't think about the la, The last thing on their mind is, is getting killed. Fair statement? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. No, you're just out there to race. You're not thinking about getting killed. So Okay. Now, yeah. I was going to say, let's go back to some of the early days. So when did you start actually building engines on your own, and when did you start getting extremely competitive with everybody? Well, you know, I went to work for, at the shop when I was 16 years old, and I was there for 19 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's when, uh, you know, I built engines, and... Uh, then as we as we changed different engines to the uh, to the Cosworth and and uh, you know uh, Cosworth didn't like it because uh, I'd go out there with my race car and and, and beat the Cosworths to come out of the factory and uh, because you know we just had our little tricks that we did uh, uh, with uh, a rod angle and and compression ratio and and uh, valve lift and. Uh, and and we beat the uh, the the factory teams, and they sure didn't like it. <clears throat> now, so with this, with this, I'm just trying to put the time period in front. So we're talking in the 50s now. Is that what we're talking? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So who besides Cosworth? And I thought they came later in the game, but they may have been around in the 50s. Who were some of yeah. your competitors? Well, uh, engine wise, engine wise. Well, the the Novi was the only only okay. one that was our competitor. Uh, yeah, that's that's the one thing I can think of. It was just the Novi's. And 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 how competitive was the Novi? And what made the, the what what made the Novi kind of a unique motor? Well, the Novi was uh, supercharged. Oh, okay. And uh, and you know when the when the Novi'd go out on the racetrack, uh, the, the word had come around the garage area. The Novi's are going out, and all the mechanics and drivers and car owners would go over and they'd stand against the fence and watch that thing, watch and listen to it go by. It was really a thrill when those Novi's went by because of uh, the supercharger, and uh, then they had those straight pipes on them that come down each side, and, and uh, boy, they really made a racket going around there. Now, if they were supercharged, were they a smaller displacement than your Offenhauser motors that were normally aspirated? Uh, yeah, they, they allowed, uh, yeah, they allowed 183 cubic inch supercharged. Okay. And uh, and then uh, uh, 255 uh, normally aspirated. When when did you um, like the Offenhausers are basically overhead cam engines, and you had mentioned earlier that they had uh, kind of evolved out of the Millers, which kind of evolved from a Hispanic Suiza, which the Europeans at the time were already experimenting with multi-valve engines and overhead cam shafts. So was was that a big? Uh, I mean, today people think it's it's a big deal, but you guys actually had that, you know, and almost in the twenties and thirties, right? Well, I just wondered why the automobile companies didn't build overhead cam engines for passenger cars because they're just so much more efficient uh, than the L heads that they were running. So, uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know why they uh, they took so long to get the overhead cam engines, but they finally got to it. <laughs> now, the 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 multi valve engines, in other words, you know, because now we've got three valve, four valve, five valve. I mean, it's getting crazy out there. I mean, does that yeah. all aid in the overall performance and economy of the motors and was this stuff that you were kind of experimenting with back in the day or is this just something that's kind of oh, yeah we yeah we had yeah we we had the two valve uh, in the midget because it wasn't uh, big enough combustion chamber for four valves but then uh, uh in the uh the 255s and 270s uh they were four valve engines okay and uh then then we learned later that uh 
uh, you know, we had a the port went in at a 36-degree angle, and uh, we learned that by raising the port up and, and going in at a 22-degree angle, uh, we gained a lot of power. So, uh, so you didn't have to bend that air that was going into the engine and went straighter in. Okay. And the same thing on the exhaust side, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. the the engines that you were running, the uh, Offenhauer engines, they were basically, you guys ran on alcohol back in those days, right? Oh, yeah, methanol. Methanol, okay. So tell us a little bit yeah. about some of the horror stories, because when it's, because it's, uh, you always hear, well, he's on fire, but you can't see it, because, so tell us, explain to us a little bit how that, that, that transpires. Yeah, but you know what? I'll tell you what, if okay. those cars are running on gasoline, I, I fueled uh, John Cox's car for 13 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, before the car would come in, I'd have a bucket of water there, and I'd, I'd dip my gloves down in it, and I'd take my head sock and put it in it, and I'd put it on my head. And, uh, and, we had, and then I had uh, uh, Pat Patrick's uh, uh, pilots. I had them stand on each side of me with a bucket of water, and uh, sometimes uh, the Buckeye would leak, and, and I know fuel was running down on a hot pipe, and we'd have a little fire, and they'd throw water on it and it'd go right out. But uh, if, if they were running gasoline, I would have never fueled a race car. No way. <laughs> no kidding, really? Yeah, yeah. Now, that, that methanol is real safe if you just got water around it, and, and you can, you can you know, keep it from igniting, and you can you know, put it out quick if it does ignite. But it does make a lot of power, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, it makes power. Now, but it, 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 it takes uh, 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 two and a half pounds uh, of methanol per hour uh, to make one horsepower. Where it only only takes like a half a pound of gasoline to make a horsepower, so it takes a lot more methanol to make power than than gasoline. So you have to run a lot richer. Okay. Now, well, then what was the advantage of it then? Well, just the safety. Really? Yeah. Okay. Just the safety and the power that you could get out of it. Yeah, you could run higher compression engines when you run methanol than you could with gasoline. So, what would be the differences in compressions, for example? Oh. Uh, you would you would be running uh, uh, say seven and a half eight to one with gasoline, but you'd be running uh, uh, fifteen to one with methanol. Is that on a supercharged engine or or normally aspirated? Oh, no, mode? no, normally aspirated engines. Yeah, really, because I mean you're talking seven and a half, you know, to eight to one compression ratio on gasoline. That's no power at all. That's that's pretty anemic, wouldn't you say? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's the way it was back then because, oh, wow. you know, we just didn't have the gasolines we have now. I got you. Oh, okay, so what you're saying is the octane levels were extremely low back in yeah. those days. Oh, yeah, they were. Okay. The octane levels were low, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Now, have you done any experimenting, any research with octane? We were talking about that earlier, too. Did you guys, uh, you know, like, so when you were racing, so you were running strictly methanol, you never raced with gasoline? Yeah. No, I never race with gasoline, no. Okay. No, always race with methanol. <clears throat> of the yeah. teams that you uh, worked with, because later you left and you kind of went on your own, you became a team or an engine manager, I guess that's what they call it, right? An engine manager for, for a number of race teams. Of some of the race teams that you worked for, which were the ones that you had some of the most memorable experiences? And obviously they'd be the ones with, like Gordon Johncock when you guys won Indy a few times. Well, yeah, right, well... From 1973 to 1985, I was with the Patrick Racing Team, and uh, I was the powertrain manager and engine technician, and and I fueled John Cock at every race and test, and uh, and uh, we won two Indy 500s with him. And uh, the the 82 so, race was the one that was real close between Co- John Cock and uh, Mears, right? That, 
That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure okay. Was. And yeah. what what do you think was it, is it was it the driving? Were the uh, tell me about the similarities in the cars? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, John Cock was really pushing, but we had a new turbocharger called a whole set. And uh, I, <clears throat> you know, the year before we finished in '81, we finished second. And uh, these fellows from from England uh, came over to. Uh, to uh, America, and they they said, uh, "Hey, we uh, you know we've seen you finish second with that whole se- that uh, turbocharger, but we have one we'd like to have you try." So Holset sent turbochargers over to me, and I didn't even. Uh, in fact, I only had one guy in the shop, and uh, when I would test those turbos, and I kept it under wraps, and didn't even leave, let anybody else in the team know that we had these turbochargers, and. Uh, so they were special trick. Uh, they were special. They were okay. made. They were made. Yeah, they were made special. And uh, so, <clears throat> what were the differences we won, in them? One Indy, and uh, well, they were just. Uh, they just actually. They just put out uh, uh, more pressure with less boost. Hmm. With more, with less back pressure. Okay. They put out more boost pressure with less back pressure, and. Uh, and I, I got I, it was really really funny because uh, uh, Roger Penske found out about us having this turbo from Holset. Oh no, kidding! No. And and so uh, yeah, he found out about us having this Holset turbocharger, and boy, he wanted those uh, Holset turbochargers, and uh, so. Uh, he finally got them, and I said to the guy over there in England, I said, hey, let's have some fun. Have all those turbos sent here to Patrick Racing Team. And, boy, they, they know more than those those turbos came in the door. And, boy, it wasn't five minutes that, that Pat Patrick says, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I think they got the wrong address on those turbos, and they sent them here rather than to Penske. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, Penske got his turbos, and and uh, and the guys at Holset said, you know, uh, we're just we'll just send him uh, turbos off the production line, and and we'll build you special ones. So okay, that worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it worked. <laughs> so well, let me ask, let me ask you this: of the of the fifties, sixties, seventies, and the eighties era racing. Which ones are you most fond of? I mean, where would you say that you thought that you got the most reward, you know, because you were, you know, from an involvement standpoint, which era meant the most to you when you were involved with, with, with indie racing? Well, golly, every year. Every year? <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, it was great. No matter what I was doing, I was, I was having a ball, well, you know, and... I, uh, <clears throat> I guess the question would be like this. For example, you know, like there's certain eras that people say, you know, during their 60s, for example, it was a real innovative time. It was extremely competitive. There was a lot of camaraderie, engine design. You know, we, we, we had, like, for example, I'll give you an analogy. Can-Am racing out of the 60s and 70s. In my opinion, Can-Am racing was great because there were no rules. You guys had carte blanche and could invent and develop whatever you wanted to do. So that's that's kind of where I'm going with the question. Well, you know what was great? When you would... You'd build a race car and an engine in your backyard, uh, and uh, in California, and you'd bridge it to the to the speedway, and all mechanics and drivers and car owners would come out and see what you unloaded out of that trailer, and see what you built over the winter. And uh, of course, now it's just cookie cutter racing, they're all the same same chassis. But uh, then it used to everybody would say, "Hey, so and so's pulling in," and boy, everybody would run over to see what what was unloaded out of that trailer. 
Well, it was a time of innovation, wouldn't you say, the 60s? Oh, yeah, it sure was, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was a time of innovation. It sure, yeah, absolutely was. Yeah. Well, Louis, like, for example, like in the, the, because the, the cars evolved so much. I mean, in terms of evolution, did the cars, and I think we got about a minute left here. Maybe you can sum this up okay. for us. But between the 50s and 60s versus the 70s and 80s, where was the most dramatic change in IndyCar? Well, it was ground effects. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that's the dramatic change, and then and that would be in the seventies era or earlier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it was er- a little earlier the ground effect started. Yeah. Okay. So, so uh, yeah, that's what that's what really made the made the difference. And then, of course, they kept making the tires wider, and <laughs> so. <clears throat> wow. And, you know, uh, Louis, I ha- we're just about out of time, but I've got a lot of questions. I I really like to go into this a little bit further, but because we have a lot of my my listening audience is like forty five to seventy five years of age, and the majority of them are, are race car guys. And IndyCar is a big deal to a lot of these guys because a lot of it grew up on it because that was kind of like the premier racing in the United States. It's kind of like the holy grail of racing. You know, NASCAR is good, road racing is good, and I'm kind of a road racer. But we got a lot of IndyCar fans. So would would you be willing to come on the show again and we could talk a little bit more about this and go into some more detail? And, oh, uh, cause, absolutely. Cause, I, I, I'd love to. Okay, super. We'd love to do that. And then uh, what I'll do is I'll email you some questions, and uh, we can okay. we can really get in and, and, and really get a little bit more specific on this because this is we just kind of touch bases a little bit. But, uh, again, I want to thank you very much for taking a few minutes and coming on the show here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. In the meantime, I want to thank all my guests for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Remember, this is where you want to be every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock for the most legendary and fascinating names in motorsports and music occasionally. Okay, Be sure and check out our website, GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Don't forget our Facebook. Pages, Gulfstream Motorsports, and Nostalgic Radio and Cars. The great race was a great event this weekend. Our hats off to Corky Coker and the team. National Parts Depot, Richmond up there. Great event up there. Check out our website for our events page because we've got a number of things going on. We've got the Monterey Car Week coming up next month. We've got the big concourse in uh, Michigan. We've got the Bonneville Speed Week coming up, I think, at the end of the month or the beginning of next month. So check all that stuff out. Hopefully I'll see some of the car shows, some of the music festivals this weekend. Don't forget, Hairpalooza. I guess that's about it. So everybody stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. I don't mean to be telling tales out of school, but there's a fella in there who'll pay you $10 if you sing into his can. Downtown Dave. I'm not here to make a record, you dumb cracker. It broadcast me out on the radio. WTAN, Clearwater, Tampa Bay. WDCF, Dade City, Tampa Bay. WZHR, Zephyr Hills, Tampa Bay. Listen. You dumb cracker.